Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm real excited to have the writer-director Anouk Wissel here. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm so excited that you were able to come down from Canada for this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, for those of you who are not as familiar with Anouk's work, please let me give you an introduction. She studied traditional animation in school, but you may recognize her as one of three members of RKSS alongside Carl Wissel and Francois Simard. Is that, am I saying everything correctly? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, good enough, good. sorry. Yes. <laughs> the, the trio are a Montreal-based collective of writer-directors, and their debut feature was a film called Turbo Kid, which premiered at Sundance in 2015 and launched a successful festival run, racking up 24 awards, including the South by Southwest Audience Midnighters Award, the BiFan Best Directors, and Saturn Award for Best International Film. Turbo Kid is an action-adventure film about a teen superhero on an alternate 1997 Earth who must team up with some other teen superheroes to stop a tyrannical warlord named Zeus. The film was described as an homage to 80s teen flicks but with a gory twist. RKSS's next film is called Summer of 84, written by Matt Leslie and Stephen J. Smith. It follows the story of four 15-year-old boys who bask in the glory of being a teen with raging hormones in the 80s until the local conspiracy theorist of the group convinces his friends that the person behind a rash of murders is actually a cop. Like a next-door neighbor, a cop. Yeah. It's like Fright Night. Hmm. The four friends begin investigating the crime, setting themselves up for danger. Okay. So, Anouk, yes. could you tell me a little bit about why you chose for your film today Ty West's film, The Innkeepers? Uh, there is something special about that movie that just connected with me, and I don't know if it's because, like, it's like I, I like horror movies, mm -hmm. uh, especially because they often like uh, put in front like a, a strong female lead, uh, and I feel that Innkeepers, like the she, the character, like the lead, like Claire, mm -hmm. played by Sarah Paxson. And I I think that character is so interesting, and she's just like this underdog, anti-hero. She's uh, lazy. She's uh, like super awkward, and she ended up like being the most courageous of them all, and just the one that takes the lead. Yeah, and she's I like that. Definitely a different female character, even yeah. from horror films too. You know, she's yeah. like you were saying, she's very awkward. She's so strange. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, I, I think I, I kind of identified myself to her as well because I'm super awkward as well. So uh, I don't know, there's something about about the characters in that movie and just also like the whole setting and the, uh, the atmosphere, the music. I don't know. It's uh, I love that movie. It speaks yeah, to you. Yeah. Um, so for those of you who have not seen The Innkeepers, today's episode will, of course, give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, as always, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause the show and then watch The Innkeepers first, this is your chance. And you're back. So let's introduce The Innkeepers. Here's a quick synopsis. Written and directed by Ty West for release in 2011, The Innkeeper stars Sarah Paxton as Claire, a curious and squirrely front desk worker at a colonial hotel called the Yankee Peddler. The hotel is about to close forever, owing to very slow business, and this is the last weekend that Claire and her coworker Luke, played by Pat Healy, will have the chance to explore all the rooms in the hotel for ghosts. It's reported the ghost of a woman named Madeline O'Malley is there. She's a jilted bride who hung herself in one of the rooms before the owners hit her body in the cellar, supposedly. Claire's yet to experience a haunting herself, but she's in luck because the spirits are restless. Also in the hotel uh, are a woman and her son, an older actress turned psychic, and a man who insists on spending the night in his old honeymoon suite, despite it having no furniture at all. Claire begins making contact with Madeline, but gets a warning that she shouldn't go into the cellar. It's a horror movie, so of course she's going to go into yeah, the fucking sure. cellar. <laughs> it doesn't stop her and Luke from going down there with their EVP readers to see if it's really true. When some batshit stuff starts happening, Claire consults the psychic, who tells her they need to leave immediately. In the rush for Luke and the psychic to get everyone packed, Claire gets separated and called down to the cellar. It is the classic American haunting setup. Yes. So that's uh, the innkeepers in a nutshell, but it's 
I mean, I think we also have to say that it's kind of a workplace comedy yes. as well. Not just a horror film, but a yeah. workplace comedy. And this is also something I appreciate, having worked in like this kind of environment. Like in a, uh, I work at, at the, um, uh, a drive-in. Oh, you did? You know? Yeah, and it's like, it just... It's just like the the characters you meet they're like people sometimes like the, you it's not people you would hang out necessarily with them so mm-hmm. you 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 create some kind of odd friendship yeah in a workplace a bond of yeah. making very little money <laughs> yes <laughs> <in a> mostly, <laughs> mostly boring job yeah and that's you know so much of this movie is about boredom yes they're they're <laughs> <laughs> they're basically very bored and because yeah it's the last day so there are just two two of them that work there and it's just like super slow like it yeah is there something like is there something interesting cinematically about just characters who are bored and the things that they come up with to do to fill that time I think so because I think there's a lot of uh, character development during those times like when you have like these really uh, like nothing really happens, so you just like discover the character and learn to to know them better. So this is one thing I appreciate a lot about that movie specifically, as well as that the the characters you get to know them and you really identify to them. And mm-hmm. so when something happens to them, you you actually care. And you know, in, in summer of '84 too, you have quite a few moments where the characters are just kind of like bored teenagers in '84. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, for for those who weren't around in the '80s, it was kind of boring in the '80s when you were a kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you had to manufacture your own kind of fun, and you know, you've just got your friends and uh, the characters in your film. They're often out hunting for um, the missing people. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a strange, you know, <laughs> like setup where this is what they're going to do with their free time. Yeah, well, uh, I remember when we were kids in the 80s, like it's um, it's just like you have nothing specific to do and you're just outside with your friends and you just imagine adventures as well. So in in uh, in summer of 84, that's what happened. Like it's the summer and they, they're trying to find something interesting. And it's just like for Davey, the fact that they announce on the TV that there is a serial killer. It just sparks his imagination and he's just he goes like, this is like the most interesting thing that could happen. Like mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, I like yeah. that his friends are like, that's an, like that's terrible. And he's like, yeah. it's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> I can't believe something like this could actually happen here. It could be anyone. This is the coolest thing that's ever happened to us. Didn't they say hunt guys our age? Should we call it with the late night man hunt? Why? None of the missing kids from Ipswich, and Cape May is pretty freaking big. It's not that big. Is it nine towns? It's ten towns. Guys, how are you not freaking out that something's finally happening here? <laughs> because, you know, you don't... I think when you're kids, you see this on the TV, and you just cannot believe that... You cannot exactly feel that the killer impacts someone's life. Like, it's terrible, and you just feel excited because something's finally happening in your town, and something's, like... Out of the ordinary, uh, uh, ordinary. Yes. Oh my God, that's difficult for a French Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to say that the story for the innkeepers was born from the making of Ty West's movie The House of the Devil mm-hmm. um, from 2009, and um, the cast and crew had stayed in the Yankee Peddler and found that the weird shit that was happening at their base camp was actually scarier than what they were shooting in the woods. So when West decided to uh, write a ghost story. Uh, like the next year, he went with what he knew best and said it in The Yankee Peddler. Um, and so he was able to draw from the local lore inspiration, and the entire cast and crew stayed at the hotel while they were shooting, which meant that they could roll out of bed five minutes before call time, which is always nice. Um, I, your film, Turbo Kid, it seems on the surface to be kind of a polar opposite movie of Summer of 84. So if we're looking at filmmakers and how they kind of evolve, we look at House of the Devil, it's very different from The Innkeepers. You know, The mm-hmm. Innkeepers is a, like people talking in a room. Yeah, basically. You know? yeah. yeah, it's like a play. And then House of the Devil is very visually oriented. And so when we look at Turbo Kid, which is, uh, you know, like a lot of fun effects. And, and then that is very disparate from summer of 84 what happened in the in the meantime to to get to those points uh i like we most of our short films as well were like over the top and like crazy and we we uh in in most of them we have lots of gore effects and everything Mm -hmm. and it just felt like we we like to explore different genre because it's it's kind of one of the fun 
when you're a creative person is just to explore things and just try try new things. And um, yeah, so we wanted to do something different. Uh, and but we didn't expect it to be like this different because summer of eighty four is like it's super grounded. It, there's no, no mm-hmm. there's no like uh, crazy action or anything, and there's no gore. Yeah, was that it's disappointing really, to you at first? We were like, ah, it's a little bit tamer than what uh, we're used to. Or I don't think so. No, because it, uh, it's like from the very start when I, I know when I read the script, mm-hmm. and it was just like I think the fun was in the interaction and the friendship with the the kids. Yeah. And then so I didn't feel like it needed this. Like I think like the 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 turn it takes at the ending is what makes it special and I think it yeah. I I didn't feel like it needed some some gore or I didn't feel like I was missing something because I wasn't doing a gore movie or mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Do you feel like you learned something in the process of of doing something a little bit more grounded than what you've uh, traditionally, yeah, definitely. I think you learn on every project you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Turbo Kid, the thing we learned was to be super creative because it was a very low budget again, and we didn't have much time, and so we had to find solutions sometimes because uh, there are things that were planned that we couldn't shoot just because we didn't have time. Yeah, because yeah, so. This one, we, we learned to be creative on uh, sometimes it's framing shots, just like do, doing just one. Because, on well, on our short films, we cut it a lot. Like it was uh, editing like super mm-hmm. uh, dynamically. Yeah. So, but on on Turbo Kid, there are shots that we wanted to do like the same way, like in the same style, but we didn't have time. So it was either we take a one or like in just one shot mm-hmm. and... Or we and, don't have the same. And for those people who are listening, the, like a one, or I think we've explained this before, but it, it's it's one shot where action's happening. We're not cutting. It's a single a single yeah. take, essentially. Yeah. So there was one shot in particular. It's when uh, Apple teaches the kid how to fight, mm-hmm. and she uh, does the astro genital. That shot was supposed to be like you know very dynamic, but we ended up doing just this one, and we we learned that. It was sometimes creative, like de- decision and so- problem solving, created something more special because we really loved that shot at the end. I I love that shot; it's mm-hmm. beautiful, and I think it works super well. Even probably better than if it was like super dynamic. It yeah. it, it comes in, and it uh, drives another emotion. Is that something that you carried with you to summer of '84? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And yeah, because uh, Summer of 84, again, was like time was the most, uh, uh, the biggest problem. It's that we we didn't have enough time mm-hmm. because we're working with uh, underage kids. And we had a lot of location moves and again, a low budget. Uh, so uh, yeah, so s- sometimes we had to set this up. But this we planned beforehand because we knew that we would, have very little time so this is something that we learned from Turbo Kid and we could plan beforehand yeah it's a different rhythm definitely because we needed to uh, build tension so it was just a matter of uh, finding the right tempo and for the for the whole because you can't do too many quick cuts because it is kind of a has to be slow burn Mm -hmm. as you figure out you know what's happening in this town and what's going on with these kids and that's something I mean like we can draw many parallels to Ty West's work because he has been a proponent of slow horror for (laughs) you know quite a while Um, so we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll get into that concept of slow horror I'm Allie Gertz. And I'm Julia Prescott, and we're Everything's Everything's Coming Coming Up Simpsons. Simpsons. We are a Simpsons podcast on the Maximum Fun Network, and we've got some exciting news. Ooh, tell me. We are going to be doing some live podcast shows in some of our favorite cities. We're so excited, and we want to let you guys know out there in the Max Fun universe that we are coming to you. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. On Saturday, September 15th, we will be at the North Door in Austin, Texas. Yeehaw. On Saturday, December 1st, we will be at the Alamo Draft 
Craft House, Sloan's Lake in Denver, Colorado. There's no basement in the Alamo. Mm, we'll find out. It's Friday, <laughs> December 7th, we are going to be at the Vera Project in Seattle, Washington. Oh, God. Uh, Nirvana. Yes. Okay. And Saturday, December 8th, we'll be at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Matt Groening lives there. Yeah. Or once lived there. He he still lives there in our hearts. So um, make sure that you mark your calendars for those dates, and we will be posting the ticketing links on our Twitter. That is at Simpsons Pod, and we will smell you later. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today with Anouk Wissel. Hi. Hi. Um, so we are talking about Ty West, the Innkeepers, and the concept of slow horror. Um, West is a really big proponent, obviously, of the idea that um, you know you can subvert the audience's expectations and really make them wait for their scares. Um, so in both House of the Devil and here in The Innkeepers, he's making the viewer wait a tremendous amount of time to see anything at all. Um, of audience expectations as his heroines walk around houses, West said, quote, you think it has to happen in this room because it would be insane to have her go into this room and not have something happen. Then when it doesn't, you kind of have to give up on being ahead of the movie. So he's talking about withholding the scares, you know, and drawing out that tension. And he's also running the risk of losing his audience. Like he's okay with that possibility. Um, And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that kind of tension when you're making a film that has to have a little bit slower of a pace. Yeah, it's definitely important to uh, keep in mind that you could lose your audience during that time because nothing happens. So it's really a balance of uh, having like the, I think for summer, it was a balance of making like the fun stuff with the kids and just like trying to get some false cares. Mm-hmm. A lot, but it's just to... Yeah, it's a very difficult balance to to maintain so that to make sure that uh, the viewer is still entertained and still wants to follow the kids. So, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's a very good occasion, like I was saying, for to to re- develop your characters and mm-hmm. to explain them to the audience. So, yeah, and you hope that they don't mind because they're having such a good time with the characters. Exactly, you hope you, you hope they connect to them, so they want to know more about what's going to happen, and just like they enjoy the time they have, like. With the current adventure, yes. if I could say, yeah. And, you know, that's where we get, you know, people employing jump scares. I mm-hmm. think jump scares are great. I think you can't sustain an entire movie on jump scares, but I think that it's a really great kind of technique to to keep people on their toes while you're not really doing anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, the thing we made with uh, Summer is also kind of that, like... It, it, it was trying to put the audience in a safe place, thinking that they're safe in that movie and they know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, it's just like jump scares and, you know, it, yeah. th- but they're all fine. It's all fine. We're safe. We're safe. And then at the end, what we did was just like uh, pull on the the pull rug the, and yeah. just, yeah. And then you're you not safe fall. anymore. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, You had mentioned locations before, and I really want to get into it because I looked at, you know, when I watched your movie, I'm thinking, okay, this is a suburban neighborhood. This is, it's, you know, got to be a little bit difficult to shoot someplace. Um, West, when he wrote his movie, it was specifically to be shot in the Yankee Peddler because of his experience. And that meant that he needed the owners to get on board with the project or basically the project is dead. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't do it. The location was so specific to what they needed. Um, But luckily, they were immediately receptive. Like the owners loved it. They were, it's fine. There were never any talks. But very often when you're shooting a horror film, Something that I know is that it can be a struggle to secure locations for a horror film, especially if people read a script. Um, and, you know, it's great that the Yankee peddler is like, yeah, we're haunted, whatever, let's do yeah. this. Um, you know, maybe we'll get some business out of it. But you guys were shooting in a suburban neighborhood. And I was just wondering, you know, is that difficult to try to find someone? Do people request to read the script? Do you say, like, try to be as vague as possible about what you're shooting? You know, how do you... How, what happened? Uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, because it's tricky it, also for the, the like, the. I, I don't want to spoil anything, but 
the the house, the house of the the killer. Mm-hmm. Like you need the. It's not everybody that would allow you to film. Yeah, yeah to film so, the house look, of the there's killer. There's a serial killer yeah. that's in your house, and and everyone that you know will will now look at your house as the serial killer house, which is yeah. great for selling it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we were very very lucky. Uh, I'm not sure how much information, in-depth of information, was given to the to the owner, but still, they knew that it was a horror movie. Yeah, uh, and they were on set. Like, uh, they really enjoy like all the process of the filmmaking, and mm-hmm. just uh, they hang out and they they check when the, because there was um, for that particular house, <clears throat> there was some changes that were made in inside, like um, kind of the wood paneling and everything, to just to make it more in the 80s and um yeah but they really enjoyed the process so we're very lucky did you shoot did you shoot this in canada i'm assuming uh yes in vancouver okay vancouver what what brought you to vancouver out of all the places uh it was really just a matter of uh the company the production company was uh, bright light pictures and they're they are in vancouver Mm -hmm. so that's why we shot in vancouver but it's also a place where there's a lot of of, of filming there, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of crew, but at the same time, it created kind of a an issue at some point because uh, I think Deadpool two was filming at the same time as us, and another mm. like I think it was uh, skyscraper. Someone told us like lately, yeah. Uh, so there was they have a lot of technician and crew, yeah, but a lot of them were really attracted to this uh, project and we we had like a very low budget again and so you were competing with Deadpool 2 and yes. Skyscraper for your yes. crew and <laughs> Disney series as well like that provides a steady job to technician for yeah. months and yeah but um, yeah but it went well it went well do you guys um, the three of you take turns um, directing the actors or how does that work on set uh, no we're uh we reestablished like a special dynamic throughout the years because we've been doing short films for like I think eighteen years or maybe more than that. So uh, we have we have like a very special and structured way to work because we don't want to create chaos or lose time on set because like time is the most precious thing on set. Yeah, you don't want to be the problem. So we split really on set, and once we know like our vision and everything and our plan is set. Uh, that's where we split and we have uh, Johan will be with the actors because because we want them to feel safe and to just have one voice speaking to them Mm -hmm. on set Uh, and uh, François will be with with the DP, with the storyboard, and uh, I'll be with the head of department but also like keeping a kind of a global uh, look on the on what's going on, and then we would just like we can communicate very very quickly be, between shots if we have things to adjust, so that yeah, yeah, to make sure that everything is in is in sync. Well, I mean, I would say that that means that you probably have to be very selective with the crew that you're working with too. Um, when Ty West is, he was always talking about how he was very particular about who he's casting and who he wants to work with because it is a very tight set you know mm-hmm. very very small budgets require you know very passionate people passionate people <laughs> who yeah. like maybe don't have tempers or something yes you know? <laughs> um, and he said that he actually spends a great deal of time on that more than anything else um, and he said quote it was important to me to get people who are really talented and collaborative but also just cool human beings making movies is traumatic if there was one asshole that alienates everybody then the whole thing sucks I have a really good crew who are talented but as people I love them and that's kind of his his work is just you know I don't want to be with anyone who's got inappropriate behavior problems on set I don't want to deal with it that's not have, have you largely been lucky with your crews and the people that you're working with? Uh, yes. And uh, when we shot Turbo Kid, it was in Montreal, so we really knew the crew. Like, it was it was our crew. Mm-hmm. And it was a smaller crew, uh, again, uh, also. But, um, yeah, we like to build families on set. We really want, like, when, uh, because we're, we're a team of directors, so we like collaborative also and teamwork. Yeah. And we like when people, like, bring their expectations expertise and are not uh don't feel like they cannot speak yes. because we want them to like 
be as passionate about the, the project as we are. And when everybody comes together, that's when you get like the most. I think it's the you get the a better movie. Like if everybody works together, and so we yeah we we don't like we're we don't like when there's like a problematic people. So we try to avoid that for sure. So let's talk about leaving some kind of ambiguity in work. Um, I think the prevailing wisdom is that audiences want to know exactly what's going to happen, what does happen, and they don't want to have any kind of loose ends. But with the innkeepers, West wasn't as concerned about that. He said, quote, I worked hard at making sure there are two clear ways to look at the movie. You can watch this as a skeptic and see it as these characters obsessing over something and getting in over their heads. Their paranoia brings about more paranoia, which leads to them making mistakes. It also leads to those bad situations, which ultimately happen in the end, or you can watch this as if the ghosts are real and all of this is something that is meant to be. I like the idea that you can leave the movie with a friend and have very clear-cut arguments in either direction. I, You know, it's so funny. I never thought that anyone could interpret it a different way until I actually talked to a friend and they're like, oh no, that's not what I thought that happened. And I was like, no, I... I <laughs> how could you see this differently? I didn't realize that West had kind of baked that in because I was so sure what I thought had happened. Yeah, I I felt the same. So I'm surprised, but I can see it now that you explain it. I'm like, yeah, that's what true. What do you think, Catherine? I'm afraid of ghosts. So <laughs> I kind of embrace the the hunting thing. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, I feel like it was really haunted. You are of the mind yeah. that it is haunted. I think I was reading someone else's review of it and I was like, I think I could be convinced otherwise, but I'm not sure. It, de- yeah. it did seem like it was very evident to me that there were ghosts, but yeah. it could be paranoia. Fuck! What the fuck? Oh my God! Jesus Christ! You scared the shit out of me! What are you doing Crap. over here anyway? <gasps> I thought I heard a noise, dude. Like what? Begging! Like a begging, man! Oh. Okay, well, uh, I woke up and I couldn't get back to sleep, so we can switch now if you want. Sorry. I don't even know how she, you know, dies. I don't, like, I wasn't quite clear on that. And I was like, oh, am I making this up in my mind? Yeah. It's like <laughs> I, I never stopped and to, to think about it. But now I get it because of Luke, like, that uh, that says that I was pounding on the door and she just, like, didn't open because because she was thinking it was the, the ghost. So maybe it was just paranoia. But I'm like kind of like the fact that it was haunted. Yeah. I, I like that. I want to stick with the fact that it's haunted. Okay, so you too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of like the Guillermo del Toro thing where yeah. he's just like, no, just assume it's haunted. And you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. I'm there with it. I, I want to get into uh, another aspect of Summer of 84. And maybe you can set me correct. I'm not, I'm not totally sure. But I know that The Innkeepers has no CG and no computer um, effects. Uh, it's all practical effects. And Wes says that he works primarily with the same two guys in his films. Um, and he obviously has an affinity for the horror films of the 80s, where practical effects um, dominated, mostly because computer effects were in their nascent stages or, you know, they just weren't around at all. And even now he says that he doesn't always trust them, which is why he nixed a part of uh, House of the Devil where the house burns up at the end um, because it would have been done in CG and he just didn't trust that it was going to look good uh, for the kind of budget that they have. And I was wondering, so Summer of 84, it seems to me to have a lot of practical effects. Am I correct? Or Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, we love, like, we're kind of the same uh, school as Ty was because we really enjoy when the effects are practical because it feels like it's real. Mm-hmm. And even like as an audience, when you, you sit in a theater or in front of your TV and you watch like a CG fest it's just like you get this disconnect mm-hmm. from it because it doesn't feel right like it feels like it's just cartoons now it's just like it so do you feel like sometimes the violence doesn't feel visceral or like the feel like just things in general they don't feel like they matter yeah it, yeah I, it, we could add that yeah definitely because it's just it doesn't look real because even like the the most realistic like VFX, especially when you have a, a, a low budget, you you risk the fact that it doesn't look as as real as it could 
be. Yeah. And then you wasted your budget on something. That exactly. And you regret it. That's such a, I mean, that's such a, a, a big toss up, though. You know, there are some things that you really, you kind of have to do in CG. Yeah. And that, that seems very, like there's a lot of tension in making those decisions. Yeah. And uh, like uh, on Turbo Kid, like we have, you know, the, the superpower of Turbo Kid. Obviously, we can, we wouldn't have been able to do it like practical on set. Yeah. But all the explosions and were are a mix of VFX, but also of real stuff exploding. Like uh, we had a team that just went with um, with guns and shot uh, a big bags of gore, and just these. <laughs> <laughs> they had a lot of fun. They had really a lot of fun, and so it's kind of a mix to because the, the best CGI is the one that you cannot see. Yeah. So. What's clever is to use CGI to just uh, kind of uh, make a better integration of your of your practical effect. Sometimes just to hide like a, a tube or yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is the best way to use it. Uh, on summer, there are uh, there are CGI. There is CGI a bit, uh, like to sometimes to I like satellite satellite dish that we can remove from the the. The roof of the house we mm -hmm. were filming in. So sometimes it's just tiny things like that. Oh, so you just like, hey, can you take this out of the shot? Yeah. yeah. Did your effects people ever come up with some idea that kind of blew your mind, or you're like, this is better than I thought it would look? Or uh, sure. Um, on the on Turbo Kid, like the guys are really dedicated, and they they built and like contraption to shoot better like uh, squirting of blood like they they're really <laughs> they're like, inventive not squirting right it's yeah like, exactly so they, they they're like compressor and everything and like a table I remember with like lever so that they could like uh, push more like uh, anyway they're very inventive but they they created um, a gore cannon Yes, a gore cannon. Yeah, which is like something portable that they add on their <laughs> on their their, <laughs> their arm, and it would just like shoot gore like a cannon, and they would move like a, it. It was yeah, that's wonderful. Really cool. Yeah, I wish they had those at like baseball or hockey games and shoot gore instead of t-shirts. Like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was essentially a guar concert, but yeah. <laughs> um, I I wanted to talk a little bit about. Uh, Sarah Paxson, who plays Claire, and some of the you know the choices that people make in casting their actors. Mm -hmm. um, I find it really interesting that Wes said uh, most of the actresses he wanted for the role of Claire, they just did not get the story. Um, they didn't understand the idea of minimum wage workers just hanging out, fucking around in a hotel. <laughs> it was possibly because many of them had never worked a minimum wage job, and so they were. You know, they were coming in being like, wait, so they're just kind of dumb people who don't want to do anything? <laughs> um, I I don't know what the minimum wage is in Canada, um, but it's certainly not living wage in the United States. And I, I just think it's funny that that's what really got Sarah Pax in the job where she's just like, oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I understand, yeah. like, you're just doing nothing, talking flirting a lot like you always had like a weird work husband or work wife just because you spend a bunch of time together yeah. um and you know that so that that relationship between claire and luke that rang true to you though yeah yeah definitely yeah i didn't know that story so that a lot of uh, actors just turned down the role for for that it's funny they just didn't i really like that character like i think it's personal maybe but i, I like that character so much yeah, it's a yeah, it's a kind of weird relationship between them and you feel like Luke is not really that much into like this ghost thing and he's just like trying to impress her. But yeah. Yeah. But he's got the website that he's working the on. The website like... is amazing. I remember I had a website in the nineties and it looked like kind of that with the animated gif and yes. everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. But yeah, yeah that, that's something I read too. Like somebody said that I don't know, remember where I read that a while back, but that it was setting set in the current time, yeah, and not in the nineties. But I felt like it was very true to the nineties. Every details in that movie are true to the nineties. So yeah, because no one's taking out their cell phone. Yeah, but I I think it's interesting. I mean, he's he's basically by doing that 
making it more not about like um, cities where, of course, in a city, everyone's like up to date technology. But I think we forget that maybe in smaller towns, you know, outside of the major metropolitans Mm -hmm. that, you know, people are behind the times. They have old computers. They don't need a new computer. It's going to be slow. They don't know how to use the best technology, you know, so it's. It's kind of a beautiful statement on just as well, yeah, yeah, provincial living, you know, yeah. which seems simpler and wonderful, yeah. <laughs> romanticized in a manner, yeah. unless you're being murdered by ghosts. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. Sarah Paxton was able to get what this character was bringing, and that was an easy casting choice for Ty West. Did you guys have any issues with trying to explain to your young actors what you were trying to do? Because this is, you know, these are people who were not born and no. <laughs> were not around in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. And the movie that you're making is really kind of born from those uh, American uh, horror film cinematic traditions. You know, yeah. So did they understand that? Do you have to explain anything to them? Uh, we did have to explain a bit to them, like the the whole dynamics of growing up in the the eighties, like without the social net network and uh, everything, like social media. Uh, they find it was very funny that we were like kind of the last generation to grow up without having like Facebook and being exposed to that. So mm-hmm. and no cell phones and, uh, but uh, they really got it. They really got it fast. I th- I think they really understood the difference. From being a kid in the 80s and kids right now and so I feel like they really it, it did you make them watch any movies and you're like this is 1980s horror uh, yeah we suggested the the um the the checks also like breakfast club and just like old old movies that we that we watched when we were younger yeah. so just so that they could grasp the whole concept of yeah of the of the 80s that's and it, all you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's. I mean, to me, it's difficult to explain to children. You know what yes. it was like. Yes, you're going to be bored. You're going to be interested in tabloid yeah. <laughs> magazines or whatever Davies. You know, cutting out like the yeah, filling no, his wall with the conspiracy theorist stuff. No inter- internet to check your facts. Also, yeah. like, and it's a. Uh, yeah, but it, we we were the, those kids because I, I remember like obsessing about a book that was the Writer's Digest, the book of the mysteries, mm-hmm. uh, and it was just about ghosts and you know Loch Ness and everything monster. It was, and I felt like it just like it sparked like some imagination and creativity as well. So yeah. Yeah. And that's, all, I mean, like, it's a little bit less of, um, it's like a kinder, gentler conspiracy theory, as opposed yeah. to the things that we're getting now, where it's just, yeah. like, pre- prevalent on the internet, and people just really honestly believe it. But, you yeah. know, it was, it was a kinder time. Yes, it was. <laughs> to, believe, to believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Yeah. Um, we're going to take another quick break, and then we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about the innkeepers. Kardashians. Michael Cohen. Hashtags. Clickbait. Memes. Oh. <laughs> Debunking. Rebunking. <laughs> Regular sized bunking. Bodie McBoatface. Do any of these words make sense to you? Then maybe trends like these is the podcast you should be listening to. We put an episode every week on MaximumFun.org. Hosted by me, Travis McRoy. And me, Courtney Enlow. And me, Brent Black. Trends like these on MaximumFun.org. Because with trends like these, who needs any memes? Ah? Ah? <laughs> yeah, that was great. <laughs> Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today with Anouk Wassell, and we are talking about Ty West, the Innkeepers. Um, something I thought that was really interesting about the movie was that uh, when Sarah was cast as Claire, West didn't know her at all, but then he met her and realized that she was so goofy and bouncy and weird, and he reoriented the character essentially to be Sarah Paxton. Um, so he wrote the part for her, in, essentially, and... 
I'm wondering, you know, when you guys were doing casting for this, you've got four distinct personalities of these um, these boys. Did you ever change anything in the characters as you were casting? Uh, we didn't change anything that would change, like, the DNAs of the characters. Mm-hmm. But we did let them bring their own self into it and even, like, ad-lib sometime. So I think it's important when you... When you um, you direct a movie, you have your your actors and you know, it's kind of their it's their their job and their profession and their expertise to to kind of understand characters and read characters when they when they get a script. And so at some point they just kind of become them and you they can bring so much more to what's on the script. So I think it's important to respect that. Uh, Sarah and Pat Healy, who played Luke, um, they met essentially an hour before they started shooting in character. Uh, it's a testament, obviously, to their um, their talent as actors that they could express that kind of um, deep friendship, you know, a friendship that yeah. has history, even just after meeting each other right, right before they started shooting. Um, and I'm really curious, you know, your first film had characters who all kind of meet along the way, right? Mm-hmm. And then, so they don't need to express any kind of shared history. But in Summer of 84, you're depicting four very close friends. And I'm wondering, how difficult is it to make best se- best friends seem real on screen? Uh, it's, what we did for, for Summer is that uh, they all met for the first time at Table Read, which, which was like the f- the Friday and they had just a weekend before we shot, we start mm-hmm. shooting the, the the movie, so they didn't have a lot of time to bond. But we asked them to just spend t- spend the weekend together and try to spend time together and just like get to know each other. And and uh, they decided to do an escape room. Ooh, okay. Yeah, so this could have gone like terribly wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but it actually worked to like get them to kind of uh, uh, get to know each other and just relax a bit and. What we did is the the Monday when we started, we we planned to start with the, everything in the the treehouse because it was a very close mm-hmm. uh, set, and they just like that way they could really establish their dynamic as a group, their dynamic as a, as as friends. So and we have to give the give it to them that they're very talented and professional actors, like their kids. They they were. Like three of them are 15. Mm-hmm. There's just uh, Caleb who plays Woody that is uh, early 20s. Mm-hmm. But they they just, their friendship felt felt tr- uh, true. Was really. that a surprise to you? You're like, oh, oh shit, you guys are friends. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a pleasant, maybe not a surprise, but yeah, um, maybe a, a relief <laughs> <laughs> knowing that they were as friend that they got and throughout the movie throughout this, the, the shooting of the movie they became like closer and closer and it was uh, I think they all they all still talk to one another right now so well, that's, that's nice that's a tip to directors definitely have your cast do an escape room and then if it works great if it yeah, doesn't, it doesn't. Ah, yeah <laughs> figure it out <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm really curious about the the idea of how to elicit scares from an actor. Um, there's a great story about Sarah Paxton not being clued into the jump scare that comes from Luke's computer. You know, the, yeah. the one where you're waiting and you're looking at the rocking chair on the computer screen and the camera's kind of um, uh, soaring in slowly. And her reaction in that moment was completely real because she didn't know what it was. She didn't understand. She was like, what's going to, I'm just going to look at this thing. Um, and it did freak her out. So she started screaming. <laughs> and that's like a cute anecdote, but it also brings up a larger question about how to get reactions of being frightened from your actors. I mean, obviously you're like, okay, more experienced actors can presumably just jump right in and they can pretend to be scared in the moment because that's what they're trained to Mm -hmm. do. But with younger actors, I wonder if that's actually a little bit more difficult at times or do you have to ever conceal the scary things around the corner from them or conceal parts of it? Um, How did you guys approach this? Uh, It feels like we didn't have to. But we, we there's one time that we did. Yeah, yeah, and it's when they discover the um, 
the bathroom, like the council bathroom. So none of them saw, and none of them saw the child, kind of the childhood the room as well. I'm trying to be like as yeah, <laughs> as big as possible. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a big a big set piece, and and it's a it's a huge reveal yeah. of what these characters are looking for. Um, and so they didn't see that at all yeah, beforehand. And, and these sets were very creepy. So, yeah, we kept them from them until we, we shot it. So, uh, yeah, so they, they got a real reaction from seeing, like, the traumatic things that they see. But uh, apart from that, uh, I think it's mostly uh, Davy that uh, has, a, like, scare, scary moments. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and he was just like so professional that it, his reaction were as as realistic as it could be. Like uh, mm-hmm. he was very good. So yeah. So did you have to get any screams from anyone? I'm trying to remember. Uh, we have one from uh, Tera Tera Scovby from Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. Was that hard? I mean, I think it, the one of a, another anecdote from Innkeeper's set is that Sarah Paxton didn't know how to scream. So they, she almost yeah. got fired because there was going to be no screaming in the movie because she's a terrible oh, screamer. No. Um, so I mean, like, did you have to? Do people come in just knowing how to scream, or I don't know. I don't know how you get like the the the, the capacity to scream. I know when I was a kid, I, I watched like a lot of horror films with the uh, with you. He's my older brother, so yeah, I watched like. A lot of horror, horror films when I was really, really small, and I kind of developed that thing that my brother called it like the the killer scream, <laughs> yeah, because it just would like <laughs> kill his uh, his uh, his ear. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if it's something you're born with or you develop over time, or I really don't know. But I I, I know that um, Sarah, who plays Nikki, she uh, she had like the the real horror movie scream and she she yeah like she 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 really impressed us when she did it for the first time we're like oh <laughs> oh great you know how to scream <laughs> <Yeah>. that's awesome <laughs> i mean if your movie depends on it i think probably people maybe ask for that in audition stuff but other than that you know like i don't think yeah. ty west for instance he wasn't really thinking about it he was just like everyone can scream right and no <laughs> yeah, no, not everyone can. And we didn't ask. Like, yeah, we didn't ask Tara to to scream in our audition as well, so we could have not ever scream. <laughs> <laughs> um, as we as we wrap up the conversation, I'm curious. So you can talk to me a little bit about um, kind of a, a love for maybe 1980s American horror. I'm, you know, you guys, you're Montreal, right? Yes. So, you know, was that part of your life was the kind of American horror? Were you doing a lot of Canadian horror? What was... Uh, it was mostly American horror, but also European horror that mm. we were getting uh, because uh, we received all the, the French dub uh, VHS and everything at our, our um, uh, how do you say, a video store. Mm-hmm. That thing that doesn't exist anymore, and that was so great. They do. They, there's some. There's yeah. some. Please find your and support your local video stores. Yeah, do because we need them. Yes, it's like it's amazing. But uh, yeah, so we had a lot of uh, European and and uh, a, a bit of Canadian, but not that much. I feel like I haven't I haven't really watched Canadian horror when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for well, some reason. What do you think mostly influenced you? I mean, I look at Summer of 84 is, to me, seems very clearly American. It's not, um, it it doesn't have European sensibilities outside of, I think, visually. There's mm-hmm. definitely some sensibilities. But the, the kind of core story of, um, you know, uh, an idyllic uh, suburb, a cul-de-sac, where everything is just fine and dandy and nothing ever bad happens, you know, that, that to me speaks very much to that American dream horror that we had in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I mean, what appealed to you about that when you guys were making this? Uh, it's really strange because it does uh, really represent the American dream and or the kind of the beginning of the fall of the American dream or yeah. the idea of the perfect, perfect uh, suburb, suburban life. Yeah. But... Um, 
It was very much the same in Canada as well. So this is really like, it's really weird because we, I feel like, because I grew up in the suburbs in Quebec, yeah. Canada. So it was pretty much the same kind of, of childhood that we had with <laughs> putting aside the serial killer thing. Yeah, putting aside the serial, yeah. definitely not the serial killer, but yeah. But I think everybody had, had like this um, this house on the street with, with that kind of weird person you didn't really knew mm-hmm. and you had like these tales of uh, scary tales about uh, and they didn't like children or anything. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it really it really looks a lot as well as we lived and what we, yeah, it just translates to uh, America, but also in Canada very well. Was there, was there something about it specifically? Like you mentioned, you know, like American dream ending kind of thing. Was that kind of a sense that that you were feeling in Canada as well, that there was some kind of decline or something scary? or I think we kind of got the same moment where, uh, you know, like the the safety of the suburb kind of were, um, I don't know how to say it, like uh, disturbed at some point because it just like become, became something that you would see on the news. And mm-hmm. uh, it just, we people started talking about it more and just like, you would see the mugshot of like serial killers or everything on on the news. We kind of had like the same thing happen in Canada as well, mm-hmm. and that you cannot trust your neighbor anymore. And it's uh, yeah, we had that because I remember playing on on my street, and I would play at my friend's house, just like at the opposite house of mine, yeah. just across the street. And when the the sun w- was going down, like, and we were like crossing back to each other's house or whatever, our parents would check, would look at us like cross the street and it's a very small street and mm-hmm. it's just like it's the suburb and everybody knew each other, but there was still that, that sense of fear. It, so you're, I mean, I, I love any kind of horror movie that exploits that sense of fear that people already have, and yeah. which we are also obviously see in the innkeepers because <laughs> there's no way that you go into the Yankee peddler and you're like, this is not haunted. Like, yes. it's definitely haunted, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to thank you so much for coming in to talking with me about uh, both Summer of 84 and the innkeepers. And um, Summer of 84 is doing theatrical. Um, when is it coming out? On the 10th of August. August 10th. Yes. Wonderful. So you can find VOD it. And VOD and digital on the 24th. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group, too. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.